As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with my friends Paul, Tanya, and Martin. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a short story. We did this over Christmas when we talked about, it's more of a novella, about the Christmas Carol. Um, I think for Dickens, it's a short story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, true. But we're going to get into The Bet by Chekhov. So if you're a listener or a viewer and you have not read this, I would actually, this I will only probably say this once, but I would actually recommend stopping listening. And it's like a 10 minute read. This is quite short. Very short. Read it. Jump back. And in. I, I, I'll speak up for listening to a discussion of something before you actually read it. I, I, I think that I think listening to a podcast before on something and then reading it, listening to it after actually would be even better. Because uh, oh. I, I, because I always think that I can't listen to something that's about a book I haven't read. And then I'll listen to it, and it was so utterly enlightening even before sure, I read the book. Sure. So I've had that I'll, experience. Yeah. So do what you will. <laughs> do whatever you want. Don't listen to me. Yeah. Do whatever you Shane, want. Shane thought he was in charge here. And, you know, yeah, I've never thought that. All right. Before we get to this discussion, however, I wanted to ask you all a question. Have you been reading anything different oh, lately? please. <laughs> We're going to ask about reading before we talk about reading. Um, I don't, did I talk about my latest Graham Greene novel, A Burnt Out Case. No. Did you finish Monsignor Quixote? No, I, I'm leaving that for right before oh, okay. we, we right meet about it. Right. Because uh, it is a short one. But A Burnt Out Case is also a short one and uh, very interesting about a man who- You really like him. Yeah, yeah. This man gives up everything. He's got everything. He gives it all up to go live in a in a leper colony in Africa and kind of helps the doctor out. But he's burnt out. He's been completely burned out by modern life. And he's trying to... Does he have an enlightenment there? I haven't got to the end of the book. I'm hoping, uh, I think so. Okay. I, in Graham Greene fashion. I it would sounds good. So. Yeah. Donnie, have you found any time? Well, I'm reading... I'm, st- I'm almost finished with The Winners, okay. which is so long. But what I've had to read is um, we're starting a new show about literature with Lee and Ian. And so I've had to read all 34 of the kindergarten read aloud books in preparation for that. So I've gone way down in my reading level. And it's amazing really how good they are. We've chosen, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago when her, she only had two or three kids and they were. Her kids aren't that old yet. They, it was a, it was a like, I think she only had two when we, when we actually chose them. Hmm. And now she's got five. Oh. Yeah, Baxter's in the 10th grade. Yeah, he's not 20. That was my point. Oh, no. 15 years ago? No. Martin, what have you been reading? I've been reading some things for one of our Memorial College classes. Um, we're doing a class in sociology, so two of the classic sociology works, Max Weber's uh, The Spirit of Capitalism and the Protestant Ethic, and Emile Durkheim's Elementary Forms of the Religious Life. And they're fascinating. Uh, these are books that I never would have wanted to take as a college student, uh, but now that I've got a little few years under my belt, just a few, mm. um, they, uh, I really have been enjoying that the the analysis of how religion has influenced society. It's just been 
been a great experience. Now, Martin, I have a follow-up question that doesn't pertain to what you were saying because <laughs> I couldn't, I had a hard time paying then attention. Then it can't be a follow-up question. <laughs> I, I just couldn't hear what you're saying over the, the way that that Kindle is attracting my attention. That's a Kindle. Talking. You have a Kindle? And I don't Martin. know if it's, it was the 2018 summer article. I don't remember which article where you basically said that people who read Kindles are fools. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in short, that's what the article said. Um, I, uh, I had no other options. You know, when I'm on a desert Island and I have to eat coconuts, it's not because I just love coconuts. It's because I don't have anything else to eat. So when I went home last night, I, I, I didn't have a so printed copy. All your books? So I, I, I ate coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I resorted to a technology that allowed me to do that, which is, I actually have a Kindle too. So I, I acted like I was in judgment of him, but I do have a Kindle. It's just I'm, how I'm, you use it. I I'm also have so a Kindle. And have no, I'm so no surprised that, that Martin would have ever shelled out the money to have one of those, that coconut. Somebody to, bought it hey, for this you. This was a gift. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have shelled that money for it. Yeah. A gift from my children who think I'm a fuddy duddy. <laughs> My, excuse me, my good well, for them. Yeah, my children. Yeah, good for them. Do you think they think that because you are a funny daddy? Uh, I have no comment. Um, I hope they have bookshelves full of books too, though. Oh, they my 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 grandchildren. Yeah, my my children and my grandchildren are big book book readers. I mean, every every one of our grandchildren, they'll crawl up in your lap and say, "Read to me, read to me." Mm. Uh, my youngest. We went out to dinner last night with my second son and his wife and our. Uh, one-year-old grandson, our fourth, and uh, and he he's literally one years old, and he will sit with a book and leaf through the page. <laughs> so if I, I, it's really important, people don't think that you can start that early. Oh yeah, and then they'll be less likely to to have to resort to these. That's things right. right yeah, because when you see your grandson staring at some object and moving his hands like he's trying to change the page on a Kindle, you're going to be really sad. Uh, possibly. So what are you reading on your Kindle? <laughs> well, I'm not reading on my Kindle right now, but you know, I, I'm reading three books right now. I'm continuing to read the Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Uh, yeah, T.S. Mm. Eliot. And that's just kind of a slow thing. And a commentary. I'm reading and rereading re and I'm using the Cornell Guide. I'm reading two other books that are very lowbrow. That is just because I'm reading something that's more dense. I won't even mention the names of said books. One's a crime fiction book. One is uh, 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 film criticism. But I'm, a, I would be concerned that saying the titles would be an endorsement, and they're mm. I'm, I'm not endorsing said books necessarily. Mm. But maybe talk to me afterwards, <laughs> and I'll tell you. Martin likes crime fiction. Well, okay, so I was I was having this this Twitter messaging thing with a uh, an editor of a of a large state newspaper who's a good friend of mine, uh, the editorials editor, and. She's always pushing P.D. James on me. I love hmm. P.D. James. Now, that yeah. that's really a British murder mystery. Right. It is a British murder mystery, yeah. And he's a poet. She. No, not P.D. James. The um, Dog Leash is oh, the one you her okay. protagonist is oh, a see, poet. Okay. Yeah, right. he writes poetry. Oh, okay. wow. If she saw that I, we had been discussing this and I'd promised to read it in the message I sent her like two years ago. And she said, oh, by the way. <laughs> so uh, it, she is worth reading. Yeah, okay. So let's turn our attention to the bet by Chekhov. First, Martin, initial reactions when you read this short story, it's, it's really short. That was my, that was my first reaction was yeah. that it was, <laughs> that so it was it's not so even short. really. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, what about you? Initial reactions? 
Oh, I liked it. And I'm not, Russian lit is not my favorite mm. because it's so cold. But <laughs> this one doesn't talk about the climate at all. So I didn't have sure. to think about people in fur coats in the snow, standing in bread lines like you do with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. That's a good point. But I did. I liked it. I thought it made a good point. I was interested. Um, first of all, I think uh, Chekhov is, was a very nice-looking young man. I looked him up. Hmm. He's pretty uh, pretty handsome. But my, I looked him up because I really didn't know a lot about him. I had read The Cherry Orchard. Is that the name mm-hmm. of the... Yeah. I'd read that in college, and I haven't read any Chekhov. I haven't read anything else, and I certainly don't remember that one. But but it said, the bio that I read of him said that he became an atheist in later decades of his life. And so I was really mm-hmm. curious because this, so he wrote this book in 18, or this story in 1889, which was within the last decades of his life because he died in 1904. Yeah, but it doesn't read as something written by an atheist. So now I'm confused. Mm. Does anybody know the I, I don't. History? That would be actually would be a good question, uh, maybe for later in the discussion, is if you didn't know that, what would you guess? Yeah, I think that that's, that's mm-hmm. right. Is there, there really is some kind of religious or theological statement being made here. And it seems like that's what he's trying to get us to, to talk about is, or am I just tying, am I just tying theology into just the moral goodness of, of knowing that money isn't the most important thing. Mm. Do my well, Christian values just affect? I, well, I mean, one of the questions we're going to have to ask on this story is, is, is the conclusion nihilist? Mm. Mm-hmm. In which case, you don't need a Christian author. You don't expect a Christian author to be uh, sending that message out. Before we get there, Paul, initial reactions to the story? Well, well I've read it a couple of times before, and we've I've participated in groups a couple of times where we've discussed this. Um, so I don't remember what my initial reactions were. I just I, I think the whole premise is fascinating of of a man voluntarily becoming a prisoner for 15 years. And what would that man in solitary confinement do mm. if he had access to anything? Basically. Can I tell you my second reaction? <laughs> you can, <laughs> but right after we take a quick break. <laughs> Martin, what's your second reaction to this short story? That <laughs> um, this, this is a great twilight zone episode. Yeah. <laughs> Or for modern audiences, uh, a Black Mirror episode. That's the new. That's, the, that's, new, that's the modern Twilight Zone. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah, I expected. I was waiting for to see what Rod Serling was, how he was going to conclude this. Um, <laughs> it's a but, very abrupt conclusion. Well, okay, there is a Twilight Zone episode that had to have had this story mm. as the inspiration, Perhaps. and it's basically the same story with you know guy fifteen uh. years in prison and all that. But the, the 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 thing was quite slightly different. It, the guy was just he was at a dinner party. He was really way too talkative, and one guy bet he couldn't stay silent for. So he said, "I could stay silent for." And they took him up on the bet, and he was there for like five years. And when he went to finally free the guy, and same same thing is here. The guy, the banker, had lost all his money and mm. didn't have the money to pay him when it, at the end of the term. So they finally release him from from a basically a prison cell, and. Um, he, the guy informs him he doesn't have the money to pay him for being quiet for five years, and he, he lifts his head up, and in his neck, he's there's a big surgical incision, 
And he had rendered himself incapable of talking. That's oh, wow. why he didn't do it. And he had done <gasps> it for nothing. Yeah. That that irony, which, you know, it, this that's not quite the same irony here. But yeah. See? Did not see that coming. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> so, that's, that's the whole point in the Twilight Zone episode. For someone who hasn't read it and is only hearing the Twilight Zone synopsis, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about it, what it's about. And then I want to ask you all questions. So the story is about a banker and a young man who meet at a party. A lawyer. A young man uh, uh, who's a lawyer yeah. and he's 25 mm-hmm. and they meet at a party and the banker bets. Well, they get in a disagreement about capital punishment, which I think is important. We should come back to. But the young man says that he can go into solitary confinement for for 15 years if the banker will pay him $2 million when he gets out. The young man agrees to the bet. He goes into solitary confinement and hilarity ensues. Yeah. So, and preface by the fact that they were having an argument. Correct. And the argument was about capital punishment and whether capital punishment was better or worse than life imprisonment. And so they were, they were disagreeing on that. He said, he said that, that the, the one guy said one was worse. So this was sort of to settle. Well, the young man, the lawyer said that capital punishment was worse. Mm-hmm. And so that's why right. he said it was better to be alive in a prison cell right. than, than to be killed. Well, yeah, but they, but it's interesting because they're talking about the morality of it. Yes. And the, the young man, the lawyer says, actually, both are immoral because you're taking life away. Right. But I would rather <laughs> live. live. To live anyhow is better than not at all. Right. Which is the line I've, I've underlined. Just to show him that confinement was really bad. I, I, mm-hmm. I guess. So, Tanya, let me ask you on the broadest level first, and then we'll get more specific. What is the story about? Well, you just told us what it's about on a broad level. Yes. What is it about? <laughs> what is it trying to say? Is it uh, only telling us an interesting story about two two men, or is mm. there some kind of meaning that we should be taking from well, it? Well, I don't know that I fully understand. Um, I mean, to me, it was just the recognition that life is more important than money and that um, my, but I have some huge questions like, why did he wait 15 years? Did it take him 15 years to determine that? Why did he wait until his sentence was almost over before he left is my one question. And the other is, what is significant about the different types of books that he chose mm. to read and when he chose to read them? And so is that why it took him 15? Because I feel like by the end, by his last few years when he was reading just anything, yeah. that it that he had already made this determination. So I have a lot of questions. Let's, let's go there right away. So, okay. Tanya, you're asking... What is the significance of the books that he's reading? And for anyone who hasn't read it, the middle of the short story is describing what the man does while in solitary confinement, what the mm-hmm. young man does. And he goes from first drinking wine, doing some frivolous activities. And playing the piano. Playing the piano, <laughs> reading light, not complicated, uh, or novels with complicated love plots. And like sensational, fantastic stories, like crime fiction. He moves from novels to the classics. Mm-hmm. He goes from the classics to philosophy. Well, no, then he has no reading. He has a break after he does the classics. Sure. He doesn't read books at all. For a short time. Then he begins reading philosophy. And lang- studying language. And studying languages. Because then all of a sudden he knows six languages. Right. And then he moves from 
the, his study of philosophy and languages to theology and the um and his history of religion and the, the gospel. Well, the, oh, the gospel, gospel was first. Yeah. He's yeah. Been, the tenth year he reads nothing but the gospel. That's yes for like because the banker said how he'd read six hundred volumes the year he was reading philosophy, history, and studying languages. And then he spends an entire year on the gospel, a book, a thin book, easy of comprehension. And then following the gospel is the theology and history of religion. Right. And then last, he seems to read indiscriminately. Yes. And so he's moving from the natural sciences to Byron and Shakespeare. What is the significance of this order? Does Chekhov have some kind of thought why he's moving from through these stages this way while in solitude? I think the 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 very end, you know, where it says that he read an immense quantity of books quite indiscriminately. That last sentence of that paragraph said his reading suggested a man swimming in the sea among the wreckage of his ship and trying to save his life by greedily clutching first at one spar and then another. I think that gives gives you a clue of like he's going through these stages where he's he's looking for something. He starts in the complicated love plots, right? Um, but but it also says in, the, in that time, he refused to drink wine because it, ex, it you know, it brought excitement and it, it, it was sort of inappropriate for being in, in a jail cell. Um, and, but then he moves on to the classics. Uh, and so he's, he's looking for more. And you can tell as, because he, and, and because then he moves on to philosophy and languages, he's looking for more moves on to the gospels and theology, looking for more. And that line about greedily clutching at one spar and then another would make me think Chekhov's trying to say, in none of those books was this man able to find what he was looking for. But he finds it, but it, but it's not until the very end. He finds it when he rejects the money. He finds. Perhaps he also leaves that note where he says, I despise your books. I despise wisdom. The blessings of this world is all worthless, fleeting, illusory, and deceptive like a mirage. Is that him saying that nothing on this earth matters? Or is he saying that only that no material possessions matter? Is this nihilistic, as Martin said? Well, he says, I despise freedom and life and health. I despise your books. All in your Mm -hmm. books. And, and, And all that in your books is called the good things of the world. I think that's interesting. He doesn't say I despise the good things of the world, but I despise what in your books is called the good things of the world. He said, well, in this translation here, and I despise your books. And this is after saying your books have given me wisdom. And then he says, and I despise your books." Oh, that's later in his, I despise wisdom and the blessings of this world. Uh, That's to me, that's one of the, the problematic passages here is, is, in in a, in one sense, he um, he knows that he has gained wisdom from all these books. He acknowledges it almost in the same breath that he renounces it. And so it's is 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 he saying that that that's what wisdom is to despise all human wisdom. But he also says, I marvel at you who exchange heaven for earth. Mm. I don't want to understand mm-hmm. you. So that sounds theological to me. Mm. But I don't know that it is because he has said, I despise the wisdom in the books, which so basically 
that includes the Gospels that he spent mm-hmm. a year yep. reading. So I don't which know. which would would be consistent with your finding that he became an atheist. Yeah. Yes. Now back in the section where he's <coughs> switching from studies to studies, when he learns the languages, he sends a note to the jailer in six different languages because he's spent time learning languages. Yes, I thought that was an odd moment too. He says, "If you only knew what unearthly happiness my soul feels now from being able to understand them all." If you only read to this point, you could make a case that this is kind of a Plato's cave kind of situation mm-hmm. where he starts with the trivial and as he learns and learns and learns, he realizes that the people who haven't spent time mm-hmm. insulted, haven't spent time studying the classics and growing in wisdom, they're foolish because they're spending their time on trivialities and money like the banker. Mm-hmm. But then it takes that dark turn at the end. Do you think that he is actually saying that, that, that this learning is worthless or is he just saying its value needs to be evaluated in perspective from our mortality. Well, he pretty much says it's worthless. And then, and where does he go? Well, that was interesting because when I was rereading it for our conversation, I, I thought it ended with the guy running out the window, right? With the, the lawyer running out the window. But then what I realized is that at the very end, it ends with the banker. Well, that's that was my question, is as as we're discussing all this, is, is this primarily about the, the mm. lawyer? Or the banker. Or is this primarily I mean, about mm. the banker? And in this reading, I realized it's about the banker. So let me give I a think. little bit of the story here, and then you can continue on this point. The banker, towards the end of this 15 years, is starting to panic because he's lost all his money. He doesn't have the $2 million. Yeah, The lawyer's the one in jail, and the banker's the one. That's right. And the lawyer in solitude... When the banker goes in to talk to him right at the very end, he's sleeping and he's written this long note that we've been referencing where he says that he doesn't care about money anymore. And the banker is so relieved. And then the lawyer, the young man in solitude, a day or is it two days? It's like three hours, five hours. Five hours before the 15 years is up, he leaves of his own accord. Because he doesn't want But the the banker went in to kill him, right? Yeah, the banker. He went in to kill him. implied that that, yes. So then when the banker is so upset about all of this, is he upset because of his because of his failure as a moral person? Well, so when I read, um, you know, he kissed a strange man on the head and went out of the lodge weeping, I thought, oh, those are tears of joy because he gets to keep his money. But then, it, oh, but then he says, so. at no other time, even when he had lost heavily on the stock exchange, had he felt so great a contempt for himself. I think so he realized the lawyer had become wiser than him and a better person than him. But then there's no there's no no actual change of action because in the last paragraph, you know, he the banker went goes to to make sure the prisoner did in fact flee and to avoid arousing unnecessary talk, he took from the table the writing which the millions were renounced. And when he got home, he locked it up in the fireproof okay, safe. Okay, I don't understand that either. So he's but, still holding on to his money. Mm-hmm. He right. hasn't changed anything. But, the, but, that, but that letter t- would tell the world that, that the lawyer refused his money, which means that's okay for the banker to still have the money. So why did he lock the letter up, which was proof that he got to keep his money? Right. I think it's mm-hmm. contempt for himself because mm. that letter shows that the lawyer is the better man. Mm. And the banker, okay. the banker doesn't want to, he, rec- I think he recognizes it, but he doesn't want to become that better man. 
he he wants to continue. Yeah, you, you, you're you're tempted to think that this story is about is about the enlightenment of the lawyer who's the prisoner, but really that's just a means to the enlightenment of the banker. Is it an enlightenment, or is it just a? Well, I think he is he, he going to change he now his sees life. Sees himself more clearly. He has contempt for himself because of. Mm-hmm. He's got contempt, but my point is. Even though he's got that, that contempt is not a motivation for action for him. Well, we don't know because of this abrupt ending, really. So I think this brings us back to the first page. Do we think that maybe this story is actually about this question of capital punishment? Uh, of capital punishment. Yeah, that was that was going to be my question. Yeah. Is it immoral to? You know, we don't have to answer this question. I know it's there's a, a political element to it, but is it better to live in every situation? I mean, that seems to be, that seems to be the, the question is, is the young man right? And is that, does he stay consistent in that belief that life is to be preferred? Well, I mean, he said, you know, he said the, the way this argument is stated near the beginning is capital punishment kills a man at once. This is, I think the, the, the lawyer talking here, I believe, um, but lifelong imprisonment kills him slowly is it when he says that. Is he killed slowly in this long imprisonment? Well, he, he yes. comes out, he's got, the, he's his skeletal, hair has become yes. white. He's, he's emaciated almost. He's, mm-hmm. he's frail because even the banker, the banker thinks I could, I could suffocate him and nobody would think that. Well, yeah, because the death penalty is more moral and more humane, which is what the banker was going to do to the lawyer. He was going to mm-hmm. take his life. Mm-hmm. And y- you almost think. Really, that should have been fine with the prisoner because he's basically renounced everything. So, in one sense, in one sense, the lawyer has proven that life imprisonment is the worst thing because of what has happened to him. I, I think, I think, and I think it's it's Chekhov's um, message about the lawyer is that he's become a nihilist. He's rejected mm-hmm. everything. So that that make. And that's the that's the worst thing that could happen to it. And is that is that a necessary outcome of being in prison, solitary confinement, or is uh, it the necessary outcome of learning? Like, if you learned everything there was to learn, would you be a nihilist? Because that's and, what this and, person and, did. And and mm-hmm. is life a life imprisonment? Is I mean, life? If, is well, this is what we're supposed to be doing, and we're supposed to be reading. We're supposed to, because one of my questions is, and we're ask you ask about the order of the books he read mm-hmm. and all that stuff. What is is that tracking? Is that tracking like the the? Uh, is that is that like a, if not, it's not Clifton Fadiman's lifetime reading plan, uh, but is it is it postulated as some kind of ideal lifetime reading right, plan? Right. Or is this is it historical? <laughs> Is is it something that we could look at history and say this is what was emphasized here? This, I- but but the whole thing I think is he part of the deal is that uh, he should not be free to cross the threshold of the lodge to see human beings to hear the human voice or to receive letters and newspapers. So he's allowed to to you know have musical instruments and books but he's allowed to write letters he's he's allowed to drink wine and smoke you know he's around, allowed to read these books but he's not able to rec- he's not allowed to receive anything human is this the paradigm case of an intellectual yes yes i think i think it is it is it is that that person completely detached from the human from life. real life 
but is so immersed in books yes. that they end up in nihilism. Yeah, if you live your life in complete abstraction, this is what can happen to you. Where if you're not around other people, if you're not in society with other human beings, and all you are, all you're doing is feeding yourself mm-hmm. uh, intellectually, is this the end result of that? So even the even the gospel read over and over for a year isn't enough. Without that human community, that right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if if you don't have people loving you, does or just people to love, or it's theology love. without church. Mm-hmm. Here's the pushback: <laughs> Is Ecclesiastes a nihilist when he says vanity, vanity, all is vanity? And isn't that very similar to what this man says when he comes out of the the room? I think that's a good question. So you're reading his kind of despair at life mm-hmm. in what you all three just said as a, a negative conclusion to his learning. But for you know, the preacher, go hell it. He says, everything's vanity. And so I'll, I will fear the Lord. Well, which is why you don't just read Ecclesiastes. You read Job and you read the Gospels in, in addition. It's, but is it's it possible? One, it's, one, it, it's one truth in isolation, but no truth exists in complete isolation. Is it possible that this short story is actually redemptive in that the the intellectual, the one who comes to understand the nature of the world, that all is vanity, he rejects money, but he goes out and lives his life. He leaves and he says, I renounce my uh, right to money because it's never going to make me happy. All is vanity. I'm going to go live. Well, again, but the banker is the one who again, comes to hate right. himself. Again, if the lawyer is the, the thematic focus here, then maybe you're right. But if the banker is the thematic focus, there could be another message to this story. Or, sure. it, or it could be both. Yeah, both mess. Both have a message for us. But Chekhov has certainly left it up in the air. Yeah, I mean this is this is this is serious irony going mm. on. This is this is a great example of irony ironical writing um and in a lot of ironic writing there is no single conclusion that's that's why it's ironic yeah yeah i am i am curious about the the original uh language in 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 the phrase that's translated so i marvel at you who exchange heaven for earth Mm. i think what he's saying there is that well, I mean, that. I mean, I that the bankers people are are saying we we don't care are, about heaven. Yeah, we're we about, want that now about money. Yeah, and and so then it would make you think then that the lawyer is in fact saying what what you're pointing out with Ecclesiastes that he's saying I'm renouncing it all because what I want is heaven because I know I can't get that here. Which would speak to the redemptiveness of the lawyer. It right. would Which, speak of redemptiveness, but if Chekhov was an atheist when he wrote this, if that's really true, mm-hmm. then why would he write about redemption? Well, isn't that isn't that a nihilist? I mean, doesn't a nihilist end up saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity, but there's no solution after well, this life? Well, yeah, I mean, because <clears throat> to to Shane's point, it maybe the message is vanity of vanities, all all is vanity here mm. on earth. But you, that's a that's a worldly, and that and that's where the nihilist stops. Well, I th- depending on the nihilist, I think. <laughs> that's valid. <laughs> so I think this has been a great discussion of the short story, and I want to bring it back around. We always try to connect things back to 
classical education and our work, this kind of short story is what we're trying to help prepare our students to engage with. Can you think of other reasons why we uh, should be reading or regularly reading short stories like this, whether in community or on our own? And what is the value of jumping into something like this that is, as we've discussed it, the four of us are not totally sure what it's about. Um, (laughs) We're we're doing our best. What what is the value of a short story like this, preparing our students and encouraging adults to engage with it, given that maybe... Chekhov's view is that it's not valuable, <laughs> that it's vanity at the at the mm-hmm. end. What what's the value for people to read short stories? Yeah, the, it does this tell us that classical education is vanity. Yeah. <laughs> I well, mean, also this, I think stories like this, um, kind of go against the whole idea that you know you you read you read something and it's going to give you the answer. Mm. Um, having taught short stories for many years. I realize that one of the values of short stories, you know, because you have a, you have a different thing you're reading every week if you're, a, you know, teaching high school or something, um, is is that you're not given an easy answer. It, it what what a what a good story does is not give you answers; it prompts more questions. Yeah. And that's not to say I'm that's not being relativist. It's it's just saying that, you know, if you if you want to face life, and you want to face it in a real way, honestly. Uh, there's a lot of things that don't, you know, th- things that happen in life that there are not just cut and dried answers for you. Because a lot of students have that really men- that mm. mentality. They just want the answer so they can get the right answer on the test. And these just completely tear that apart. Which is a great reason to talk about things that we don't really understand. And I think the point then to that is this guy classically educated himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he did it without humanity, and he did it without giving back. Yeah. He didn't have the opportunity to give back. And classical education can't sit in a vacuum. It needs human interaction. It needs we need to take what we learn in classical education and and do something with it yeah. and be let it be purposeful and make us good citizens and all of those other things we talk about all the time. And I think the lack of humanity is what destroyed him. Books weren't enough. Mm. And so when we in a classroom with our students talk about something like this, what we're giving them is that community experience, whether we understand it or not. I mean, we're coming out of here. We don't really know what Chekhov meant. I wish he had written it down, but I couldn't (laughs) find it. What he really meant with this story. Also for a teacher, uh, a short story is a is a great instrument because you can deal with a whole but in very small form mm. and so uh you know they're 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 not as long to read you know some of you know uh, Tolstoy novels really huge and it's great to discuss but it, there's a lot going on there where <laughs> is this is a little nugget and and it it great it makes for one great hour long discussion in class yeah. well and and I think sort of a different way of saying what we're all sort of saying is is because it leaves those questions it prompts you to then go be human about it and talk to other people mm. um and and i mean that's something i continue to go back to in, in jaber crow where jaber as he's leaving the seminary the the professor says you've been given questions that you need to answer right like 
that that is a very human experience that we we all hold these questions but Jaber answers those by living life in community and i was thinking of exactly that scene just really? a minute ago i was yes in jaber crow which is uh which is it's in jaber crow and basically what what dr ardmeyer in the in the book tells him he says you're going to have to live the answers mm. to these questions He's got questions about things that seem to be inconsistent in the Bible, and, and he says, you're going to have to live the answer. And the whole book is about him living the answers mm-hmm. to those questions. And the essay that goes along with Jaber Crow that helps explain Jaber Crow is The Burden of the Gospels, uh, a, a speech he gave at the Lexington Theological Seminary here in Kentucky, where um, he, it, the, the questions he has in there are almost, almost uh, line by line the ones in Jaber Crow. Mm. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation about the bet. I think we should do this again sometime. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always... I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com.